God, and if you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, we're going to read the first nine verses. Of Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness." Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. We're going to stop there and uh, we're going to focus today on verse 9. But I wanted to read the whole context so that we could kind of understand uh, what Paul is saying in this chapter and, and kind of the context of where he's at. So in a sense, where we're going to focus on today in verse 9, in one sense, that's kind of a, a separate section of the scripture. Uh, and, and I'll go ahead and tell you today, I've, I've studied this out in both KJV and, and in ESV. And I actually like the wording of verse 9 a little bit better uh, in the ESV. It says, this is how it's worded in the ESV. It says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And we just don't use the word dissimulation a lot, do we? That's not something you probably used in conversation this week. But when you say genuine, most of us here understand what that means. So you'll kind of hear me use that language a lot um, today about being genuine. So the title of the message is Genuine Love. Genuine Love. So when he says let love be without dissimulation, he's really saying let love be genuine. And as we look at the, the whole passage here, he begins talking about this transformation that God's people are going through. He says, don't be conformed, but instead be transformed. And we're gonna, we are going to talk about that a little bit. And so that's the first few verses of the chapter. And then he talks about spiritual gifts uh, and then uh, goes into our section on what genuine love is. It's really interesting that that happens if you recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that whole chapter is about spiritual gifts, right? You really want to know about spiritual gifts? Go to 1 Corinthians 12, uh, where Paul really kind of unpacks the spiritual gifts. But then what does he follow that up with in Corinthians? 
He gets to the end of, of chapter 12. He says, but earnestly desire the, the greater gifts, the higher gifts, and yet I will show you what? A more excellent way. And then we have what chapter next? The love chapter. So he, he consistently in Scripture ties these two themes together. When he talks about spiritual gifts and the exercising of spiritual gifts, he ties that to love. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm just like a clanging cymbal. So he, he ties those things together. So when we practically work out the gifts that God has given us, Paul thinks that we need to really understand what genuine love is to be able to do that in the right way. So in, in one sense, it's not a new section, but in another sense, it is. I do think this is Paul still unfolding what it means to have a transformed mind all the way back from verse 2 when he says, let love be genuine. And I really think all of this ties together very closely. But for us to be able to really unpack what genuine love is, we need to just take that by itself this morning. So point number one, remember we're talking about genuine love this morning from Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Point number one is let love be genuine. Just take it directly from the text. Let love be genuine. So in the KJV, it says dissimulation. Let love be, another way to say this would be, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. So that word that's translated uh, dissimulation in, in the King James, or like I told you in the ESV, the genuine word, that word, uh, it really means unfeigned, sincere, or genuine. Um, it's used in a few other places and about six other places in scripture i got three of them that i, I was going to share with you second corinthians 6 6 says by pureness by knowledge by long suffering by kindness by the holy ghost by love unfeigned so it's it's uh translated unfeigned there in first peter 1 seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren in other words genuine love of the brethren see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently in second titus second timothy sorry second timothy 1 uh, 5 when i call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee which dwelt first in thy grandmother lois and thy mother eunice and i'm persuaded that is in thee also so when paul talked about the faith of of his young companion in the ministry timothy he said it was an unfeigned faith it was a genuine faith paul was convinced that timothy's faith was real would be another way to say that so why did paul say this about love why genuine uh, why did he have to use that word why is that even on his mind well i think it's on his mind because it's the exact opposite of verse three and we're, we're going to unpack that in just a second but just to give you an idea um, if i were to and I really kind of wanted to do this, and I, I didn't do it. But if I took a $20 bill, and I put it on the copy machine, and made a copy of it, and I cut it out, and I came up here and I gave you a choice between the real thing or the copy, which one would you take? Well, you'd take the one that's genuine, right? You'd say, well, you can keep the copy. I'll take the one that's actually worth something, which it's just paper, too. That kind of blows your mind a little bit. But really, you could take and spend the $20 bill. That's a genuine article. This one is just a copy. It's another way you could say that is it's fake, right? It's fake money. Uh, you, it's not something that's real. So that's what genuine really means. 
So why did Paul say this about love? Well, like I said, I think we can tie that to verse 3. So let's go back and see what verse 3 says. He says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So we're not to think too highly of ourselves, but to think with faith. That is, to think with our minds and our hearts in a way that looks to Christ for our peace and satisfaction. So verse 3 is about us getting out of ourselves in service to Christ and to look to him. Uh, and, to do, and that's the opposite of hypocrisy because hypocrites are, are generally focused on themselves. They think things like this. Well, uh, I'm going to do this because it's going to make me look good. Uh, or, you know, how am I going to appear doing this? How can I create a good impression of myself? So there may be some good actions and good behaviors and good things that they do, but they do those things to be seen of men and to create a reputation for themselves. So what a high standard and a lofty goal and a lofty thought it is that love must be genuine. Love in a genuine way that has a proper motive. And that's where you uh, get into the rest of our text, hate evil and hold to good because of the love that we possess and, and the, the motives behind that. What, why is the motive of our love? Well, you know, there's this thing called the debtor's ethic. So what that means is sometimes we feel like, well, God's done so much for me, I've got to pay him back. I have a debtor ethic. I, 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 there's, and there's not all bad to a sense, but really... Can you pay God back for all that he's done for you? Can you do enough good things to, to uh, no, that's not it at all. We do what we do, not out of a debtor ethic, but out of love. We love God, and therefore we want to do what he's told us to do. We want to eschew the things that he tells us to hate, and we want to cleave to those things that he says are good. So the word for love here, but before we uh, dive into this a little bit more, the word for love here is agape. And that further reinforces our thoughts here about Paul's intention. Uh, agape means sacrificial love. It is the love of God. It is a divine love, uh, a genuine love. And that's the word that he uses here. Now, we're not going to get into verse 10 today. Uh, I hope to come back to that later. But in verse 10, he, he kind of goes on from where he says, Let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. So he continues to unpack this, but in verse 10, that's a different kind of love, uh, where he says, uh, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love. The word there is an easy Greek word for you to remember. It's Philadelphia. So you, you know that word, and you know that's the city of brotherly love, right? Well, that word means uh, a, a brotherly affection. But in verse 9, this is talking about when he says, let love be without dissimulation or let love be genuine, that love is agape. It is the love that, that God has for his people. That's the love that we're to emulate in our lives, and it is to be genuine. Aboard that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. So Paul has not left his theme in this chapter. He's now kind of describing to us how transformed minds that are not conformed to this age are renewed, and that's through love. So if you're a believer, you are experiencing this battle between being conformed to the world and being transformed uh, by the renewing of your mind. The old man, the remnants of our sinful nature, are pulling us to conform to the fallen world in which we live. Did you know that 
Satan, that's, that's one of his number one goals is to, for us to be more conformed to the world than we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. He's, he wants you to be, and, and isn't it a strong pull? Let's just be honest about it. You know, sometimes we talk about this as though, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. Just don't be conformed to the world. That's pretty difficult, right? Because we live in the world, and we're not to be of the world. So we're not to conform ourselves. We're not to look like the world in which we live. We're to stand out. We're to be different or to be transformed. So the old man, the remnants of our sinful nature, are pulling us to conform to the fallen world in which we live. But I'll go ahead and spoil the ending for you. For the children of God, we are being transformed. Uh, that is taking place in your life. The Spirit has come into your heart and changed you, then you are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So we are being changed to be more and more like Jesus Christ. So what does that look like in action? Well, first and foremost, it means we don't make much of ourselves, but we make much of Christ. We see that in verse 3, and again when he says, let love be genuine. There is a lifestyle that we should be living that shows the worth of Christ over the worth of self. And that goes completely against the American culture. Um, I, I agree 100% with what Brother Drew said this morning, and I'm glad he said it because it, it, it's going to soften the blow this morning of what I've got to say. Uh, America is a great place to live, right? It, it really is, and he's exactly right. What, how blessed we are to live here. And yet, the American culture today, the American culture today, do you really want to be fully conformed? to what American culture would be seen as from, you know, I'm not talking about the Bible Belt. I'm not talking about even Faulkner, Mississippi or Tupelo, Mississippi. or, But America in general as a culture is not something that we want to just emulate and, and conform to and be a part of. We want to be transformed. We want to stand out a little bit outside of that culture. So hypocrisy, uh, which is really the opposite of this genuine love, Hypocrisy really can show itself in, in kind of two big major ways. We're going to look at those real quick uh, before we move on. Uh, one is that it tries to make the outside look better than the inside. We're all pretty guilty of that, right? I mean, that is, it's, it's kind of probably the, the biggest thing that is said about Christians a lot, you know, is, well, you know, the reason I don't go to that church is because they're a bunch of hypocrites. Well, it's kind of true, right, <laughs> a little bit. Um, we, we never ultimately live exactly the way that we say we want to live. Um, so it's kind of always there's a, there's a measure of truth in it, but we should try to live as best we can like we say, but um, we definitely sometimes try to make the outside look better than the inside. We put forward uh, what seems to be loving words and behaviors, but really they don't signify what we actually feel and, and is what's actually inside. In 1 Corinthians 13, 3, you know, the, we talked about the love chapter. Paul said if he gave away everything that he had, if he, I mean, I, so you just think about that. You know, sometimes we read that and we don't really put shoe leather to it. What if you went right now and you sold your house and you sold your car and you emptied out all your bank account and you gave everything to those who needed it, poor, to, to those who needed something. You gave all that you had away. And then he goes even further than that. If I give up my body to be burned, if I even did that, if I'm willing to sacrifice even my life and I have not love, then I've gained nothing. That's what Paul says. 
that's that's really intense right that that takes it to a different level so the classic statement of this form of of hypocrisy is actually though in matthew 15 where jesus says uh, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me so it's a religion there's a there's a show of religion there's some outward appearance of religion but really your heart is not in it it's just something that you're going through the motions and i think this is particularly difficult and 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 what i'm about to say is actually a blessing in your life but it brings up this as a difficulty in your life as well if you've been raised in church your whole life and you were raised by christian parents and all those things you know how to act like a Christian, right? You know what to do and what to say. You know you go to church on Sunday. It may be a habit. It may just be something that you're doing. Now, I'm going to go ahead and qualify that statement. Keep doing the habit, <laughs> even if your heart's not right. Uh, that's, that's not a bad thing. But it, it, can, it can be something that is external, not internal. So we can be saying the right things, even doing the right things, and yet internally in our heart, our hearts are not right. So the first way that hypocrisy shows itself is when we hide internal sin by putting up a moral or external front on the outside. Now, the other way is when we hide our own flaws by drawing attention to other people's flaws so that ours don't show up so clearly. That's another kind of form of hypocrisy. We do this in marriage a lot, don't we? <laughs> we, we want to point out somebody else's faults so that maybe ours won't look quite as bad. Um, but uh, what that, one of the classic texts for that would be Luke 6, where he says, you know, how can you take the speck out of your brother's eye until you get the beam out of your eye, right? So sometimes we have to really take a closer look at ourselves and not point out others' faults, uh, but, but just look at our own and take care of our own business. So Paul is really saying that love doesn't act in these ways. Love should be without, when he says love should be genuine or love should be without dissimulation, love should be without hypocrisy, it should not act in those ways. Love rejoices with the truth, but hypocrisy is all about falsehood and concealment and deceit and misleading. Hypocrisy is the opposite of loving the truth. So it's the opposite then of love. And Paul says, Love should be without that hypocrisy, but instead should be genuine. Love forgets itself, and it looks to Christ and, and in, uh, enjoys Christ and looks to him to meet the needs of others. So genuine love leads us to look at Christ for everything that we need and for the needs of others. So that's, that's the idea of genuine love. That's how he introduces us in this text to this concept. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. So point number one, love should be genuine. Now, point number two, this is my last point. Don't get excited. <laughs> it is, there's going to be kind of three sub points. So if you're taking notes, I'm, I'm going to help you out a little bit. Major point number one, major point number two is abhor evil and hold to the good. Abhor evil and hold to the good. But we'll have three sub-points that we're going to get underneath this because we really want to unpack this. Uh, one way that I kind of thought about doing this message was talk about genuine love, then talk about abhorring evil, and then talk about holding to good. Uh, I don't think that would have been wrong, 
but I think for us to really get a concept of what it means to hate evil and hold to the good, we kind of have to talk about them at the same time. So we're going to do that from three different aspects. So let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. It's Romans 12, 9. That's simple enough, right? Don't do the bad stuff. Do the good stuff. Um, that, that's not a hard lesson at all. Um, I guess the harder question would be, how do we determine what is the good stuff, and how do we determine what is the bad stuff or that which is evil? So, and we're going to unpack that further as we go along. But it's a wonderful thing that if you believe and teach the straightforward truths of the Bible, you can spare yourself and your children and generations uh, from much harm and, and much uh, just fault and, and failure and all of those things just by these simple, easy concepts in the Scripture. So, you know, really, we sometimes, we get too big for our britches, I guess, uh, to lack of a better term, and we, we get all tied up in the latest thing and the philosophy and what's going on, and, and the Scripture says it this simply, hate evil, cleave to good. That's, that is, that, it doesn't get a whole lot more simple than that. And when we really kind of unpack that, it can go a very long way to help us love genuinely. So uh, what most ordinary Christians need to do uh, is, is look to the Bible and, and look to the simplicity of the scriptures. And I love this phrase, and I'm borrowing this, so I'm going to give them credit. Um, if you think, pray, and obey as you read the Bible you'll be in pretty good shape. Did you know that? If you think, pray, and obey as you read the exhortations of the Bible and as you read them to your children, as you teach them to yourself and to your children and to your family, uh, that will keep you from many, many follies and many, many things. And so I guess what I'm saying is sometimes we get caught up in the issues of our day. What are some of the issues of our day? Well, we've got all this transgenderism and LGBTQ stuff and we have critical race theory and we have a lot of philosophies that are coming against Christians in our culture today. Well, the Bible is very clear on those things and it's, it's very straightforward. And so if we think and we pray and we obey what the Bible says, uh, then those issues really become things that we don't have to worry about quite as much. Uh, you don't have to be an expository preacher skilled in Greek and Hebrew and have multiple commentaries and lexicons and all of those things to be transformed by the Bible. Did you know that? You can be transformed by the Bible by simply reading the Bible, thinking, praying, and with the intent to obey what it is that you read and that you think and pray about in the Scriptures. So let's look at this in a little deeper detail, and we're going to break this down into, like I said, three subpoints under the heading of abhorring evil and holding to the good. So the first thing is, if, if this is true, if we can read in Romans 12, verse 9, let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, and cleave to that which is good, one thing that this teaches us, so sub-point number one, there is such a thing as objective good and objective evil. So there is such a thing as objective good and objective evil. Now, when Paul says abhor the evil and cleave to the good, he's rejecting the notion that we get to determine what those things are. <laughs> Did you get that? When he says that you should, there's certain things that you should hate and there's certain things that you should cleave to, 
then he's telling us that that is outside of ourself. So there is such a thing as objective good outside of me, and there's an objective evil outside of me. <laughs> so while we said such a simple phrase, you know, I said, how, how simple is that? We can teach our children very easily, hate the evil and love the good. Now we have this huge concept already, first thing that we're taking out of this. What a great thing for us to get our minds wrapped around, and even for our children to get our, their mind wrapped around, that there's an objective good and there's an objective evil. Um, and and that, that creates a very good biblical worldview. So if you can just simply understand that, that there's an objective evil and an objective good outside of ourselves, that is the beginnings of a very good biblical worldview. Um, they'll absorb, uh, your children can absorb, those who, who listen to you can absorb the view that there is such a thing as good and evil and that good and evil are realities outside of themselves. Good doesn't depend on us or anyone. Uh, it is good and evil objectively. Good is not what you want to be good, and evil is not what you want to be evil. Liking something doesn't make it good, another way to say it, and hating something does not make it evil. There is a reality outside of you out there, and then there is you. And the reality is either good or evil. You don't make it good or evil. So I know that that still kind of sounds somewhat simple, but it's, it's a very important concept because what the world is trying to teach right now is that for each individual, you have your own reality. Um, and, and, and if you don't believe me, I've already mentioned this topic one time, and I'll mention it again, this transgenderism. If you believe that you are a woman, reality, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the actual objective reality is. It's just what I am. That's how I identify. It's I get to choose the reality instead of the reality being outside of myself, and I have to deal with it. Um, so when it comes to good and evil, we don't get to make those determinations. There's a reality that is either good or evil, and we don't get to make it one way or the other. We don't, we don't get to determine what is good or evil. So how do we see this? Paul says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to the good. In other words, good and evil don't change. We change. That's why people don't like it, <laughs> because they don't want to change their view. So if I like something, then I'm going to determine that it's good, and I'm just going to do it. If I don't like something, I'm going to determine that it's evil, and so therefore I'm not going to do it. We want to kind of make things our way. But Paul says, here's the good and here's the evil, and now you bring your emotions and your will into conformity, into, into line with what is objectively there. Uh, when you face the object objective evil, you hate it. And when you face the objective good, you embrace it. So now what makes good, good? And what makes evil, evil? That is a, that's a very, very important question. So how does it come about that there is such a thing as objective good and objective evil? Well, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this verse doesn't tell us that. It just says there's an objective evil and an objective good. But you don't have to go far to see the answer. Verse 2 of the same chapter, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So God is the measure. Uh, simply, the way we can say that 
is that the reason there is such a thing as objective good outside of ourselves is because there is God outside of ourselves. And most concretely, God has made himself known objectively and historically through Jesus Christ in Scripture. So Jesus Christ is our example of what is good. Uh, If there were no God and there were no Jesus Christ, then good would be subjective. You ever thought about it that way? That'll blow your mind a little bit. Uh, if, If God did not exist, then truth would be subjective. Your truth would be your truth. But God does exist. Popular opinion does not make right. Might does not make right. Because God exists, the good and the true and the right and the beautiful things of creation all have objective foundation in God and in his Son, Jesus Christ. The nature and character of God himself determine truth and what is good and right. So when you ask that question, what makes good good and what makes evil evil, the real answer to that is the nature and character of God himself. God determines what it is that is good and what it is that is evil, and that is according to his own nature and character. You've heard me uh, talk about this before, but there's a book that that I read by Scott Haifman, and and one of the things he said in there when I first read it, just never really thought about it in that way, he said, you know, God is good not because he follows all the rules, but he is, uh, he is goodness himself. So there's not a cosmic blackboard. That was his terminology. There's not a cosmic blackboard out there in space somewhere, and it's got all the rules on it, and God is holy because he follows all the rules. God is holy. He just is holy. And so, therefore, for us to be holy, we must imitate the character and nature of God. He determines what is good and what is right and what is truth and then therefore the opposite of that is evil so what a gift we give to our children when we teach them this simple straightforward teaching of the bible that there is good and there is evil and those things are outside of ourselves they're not something that we determine but it's objective hate the evil and hold to the good now the second point that we want to unpack by this is hating and holding hating and holding more than just obedience so when we talk about genuine love and we talk about clinging to good and and hating evil so hating and holding is more than just obedience so i ask you a question has your boss if you're an adult and you got a job has your boss ever told you something or for you young people has your parents ever told you to do something and you think man that's just ridiculous you know like that makes no sense whatsoever or I don't want to do that. I, I just I don't like that. I don't agree with it. But you just had to do it anyway, right? Because your boss said so. Your parents said so. And by the way, children especially, that's correct. <laughs> you know, you need to be obedient. Uh, and that's the word of God says that. You don't get a vote in it at all. But have you ever had that to, to do something like that? So, so it, you don't really agree, but you just kind of do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. Um, it's better than doing the wrong thing in a sense but there's still something wrong with it did you know that there's still something wrong with it so if your parents tell you to do something and you you know and you just go ahead and do it it's good that you're doing it that's obedience but did you know that god's requirements higher than that isn't that boy that'll that'll really step on your toes won't it god's requirement is higher than just obedience begrudging i would call it begrudging or begrudged obedience 
If we reread our text, Paul's language under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is not just talking about doing the right thing. He doesn't say do good and don't do evil. It's not what he says. He says abhor evil and cling to that which is good. So we're going to unpack those two verbs to kind of really get our minds wrapped around this a little bit. When Paul says abhor what is evil, that's a, that's a very strong word. In the translation, in, the, in the, the dictionaries of the Greek there, that word can mean loathe, be disgusted with. This one was particularly interesting to me because I think this one is very applicable when we talk about evil and sin. To have a horror of, to be just, I, I don't want to get anywhere. If you're, if you're horrified by something, you wouldn't really want to spend much time with it, right? You wouldn't want to be uh, shouldered up with that very much. To shudder when you think about something. That's what that word really means, to abhor. To cleave means to cleave to that which is good or to hold fast to that which is good. It has a meaning of glue, to glue together, to cement, to fasten together or to, to fasten firmly together. It means to embrace it, to join yourself to it, not begrudgingly but willingly. So as we look at these two words, when he says abhor evil, he doesn't mean, well, there's an objective evil out there and there's an objective good and so on. The evil stuff, I just don't do it. No, you should hate it. You should abhor you should. Uh, you should have a horror of it. It should be something that you have no desire to go towards, no, no longing for. All of those things should be far from you. you should, it should be something that is something you wouldn't think of in a million years trying to do. And on the other hand, the good should be that which you're not doing begrudgingly. Just You don't really want to, but you know it's the right thing, so I'm going to do it. Uh, it should be willingly. So Paul's talking about more than a willpower religion or a willpower morality here. He's, he's saying that choosing the right is not enough. It doesn't signal the deep kind of transformation that he has in mind when he says that we should not be conformed to the world, but we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. He said when that really begins to take root, if you're really being transformed in your mind, it's not just that you're going to make the right decisions on good and evil, but that you're going to love the good, and you're going to go towards the good, and you're going to you're going to be glued to it. You're going to be cemented to it, and you're going to abhor. You're going to hate. You're going to have a horror of those things which are evil. Uh, remembering and remember in this the meaning of hypocrisy, doing something, saying something, or claiming something when it's really not your true belief or your true self. You see how all this kind of knits together in that way. So Paul says don't just avoid evil and hate evil. Don't just choose the good or embrace the good love the good and hate the evil the battle of the christian life is a battle of not only getting our choices into check but also getting our emotions changed not just our behavior but how we actually believe and feel and think about things so stay far away from evil as you can and as close to good as you can for those of you who are in college those of you who are in high school that's about as practical as it can get Stay as far away from evil as you possibly can. Now, what the world's going to tell you is, well, yeah, you know, that sometimes Satan uses this tactic. He won't just show you the horror of it. He'll just say, well, you know, you don't have to go all the way over here. 
but you can be here. And what Paul is saying, no, you need to abhor. If you abhor something, you know, if you came in and there was somebody in here that you just hated, you just hated them, and they were sitting on the front row right here, would you come in and sit in the seat beside them? Right? I mean, that's a, that's a terrible example. You shouldn't hate anybody like that. But I do think it makes the point. You wouldn't come in and sit in the chair beside them. Where would you sit? Probably in the opposite corner. You'd get as far away from that person as you possibly could. Well, what Paul's saying is get away from it. Don't get close to it. Hate it. Get, stay away from it. Get as far away from it as you possibly can. And those things which are good, which you can find out through Scripture are, are objectively good, you need to glue yourself to it. You need to be as close as you can. So in the opposite way. You know, back when, when I was in high school and there'd be a church meeting and I would drive all the way down to Georgia, I didn't drive all the way down there to sit on the other side of the church from where Becca was sitting. I didn't want to be on the other side of the church. I wanted to sit down right beside her. I'll tell you a little funny story about that. One time, uh, her cousin, Rachel Corley, and I drove all the way down to Georgia, went to a church meeting. They're waiting on me in the lobby. Boy, I'm fired up. I've come probably for the wrong reasons to go to a church meeting. And I come in the lobby, and we all go in, and she sits right down in between us. And I thought, what are you doing? You know, I want to I wanna sit beside her so we can talk and experience things together. Well, you know, I, that didn't sit well with me because I wanted, cause that was something that I, was, that, that I loved. Well, it's the same way what Paul's saying here. He's saying glued together, cemented, as close as you can possibly get to the good and as far away as you can possibly get from the evil. So... Who did Jesus rebuke the most strongly on this topic of genuineness and hypocrisy? Who is it that Jesus talked the most harshly about in Scripture overall? Well, that was the Pharisees, right? He says in Matthew 23:27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You see, they were not genuine. All, this ties together with the first part of our text. When we say cleave to that that is good and abhor that which is evil, what Paul is saying is you can't just do it with lip service and you can't even just do it with behavior and action. It goes deeper than that. It needs to be real. It needs to be the genuine thing, the real McCoy. It needs to be that which is, is uh, the, the genuine article. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they were not genuine. They were lovers of themselves. They loved their power. They loved their own honor. Uh, they drew attention to themselves. It wasn't real. But now from the outside, if you just looked at the Pharisees, they were very religious people, right? They were people who, man, I mean, they, they got down in the details of religion, right? But Jesus had very harsh things to say about them. They were, on the behavior on the outside, there was a lot of good. And yet, Jesus said, you're hypocrites because you're like whited sepulchers. The outside looks good, but on the inside it's full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So the lesson here is that it's not just our actions and behaviors that show we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds, but instead it's our motives and our emotions that are enjoined. What a high standard it is and impossible for us to attain outside of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So... I think that's a very important thing to pause here and say. Without the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and without spiritual understanding and, and the, the grace of God that the Spirit gives us, this would be an impossible task. Um, man in his own nature, it's impossible for us 
to see things in this way and to live in this way and to have the proper motives. Man would not have that in his nature. But we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That happens through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the work that is going on in you if you're a child of God. Uh, like we've talked about before, when you become uh, a believer, when you are converted, so you're born again, you, you are regenerated, and then you're converted, and you uh, follow Christ, and you express faith in Jesus Christ and say you want to follow him, that begins a journey, and in that journey you are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It's a work that is ongoing in your life, and that work is accomplished in us through the Holy Spirit. So uh, it is not something that, that God is telling us to do and, and not giving us the strength and giving us the ability to do. Through the Holy Spirit in us, we can. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, our last sub-point is objective moral good is good for us and objective moral evil is bad for us okay that's once again it's like a captain obvious statement but i think this is really important for us to understand um, so what what this really means is those things that god says are good are actually good for you <laughs> and those things that god calls evil they're not good for you and they're not going to lead to your ultimate good and, and even joy and pleasure in this life. Um, they, they might for a season. There might be some enjoyment in it for a season. I think we need to be honest with young people and tell them that. Uh, there, might be, there might be some pleasure in sin for a season, uh, just in the flesh. But God knows what is good for us. God knows what is right and good. And his design for us is intentional. And what he says is good is good. And what he says is evil is evil and it is bad for us so we really kind of see this in the relationship between the two halves of this verse let love be genuine and then without starting a new sentence in the original greek he says abhor that which is evil and hold fast to that which is good the link between the command to love and the command to abhor evil and embrace good is is very close and it looks like paul is saying something essential here about what genuine love really is everyone i think agrees that love means at least doing things if you love other people you're doing things for people that are good for them and not bad for them okay i think we could at least agree on that if you love other people you want their good right that's that's basically what uh, paul is getting at here if you if you truly and genuinely love people you would want their good not their evil that's that's pretty easy to understand so it would be a loving thing to do if we abhor evil and embrace the good, which means that God, what God calls evil must be bad for people and what God, God calls good must be good for people. I think, you know, there's this idea, uh, especially with young people sometimes, that, well, God's keeping us from doing all the fun stuff, right? There's, if we do this, then, man, there's all this stuff out there and we're just, we're so burdened down because all of these things it's just all these rules to follow well think with me for a minute about that that's this is true for anyone it's not just true for believers did you know that if even if an unbeliever were to live by the principles of the bible it would be good for their life did you know that it's a good thing for them even if god never gives them spiritual life even if they're never born again 
If they were to live their life according to the scriptures, they would have a good life. In, in this world, they would have a good life because what God says is good is really good. And what God says is bad is really bad. So just take one, one thing, for instance. God says that it's best for man and woman to live together in marriage, that, that that's God's design. Societies that have gotten away from that, what's happened to their society? What, what does their society look like? That's just one example. What God says is good is good. It's good for the society. It's good for the people. Uh, and when we get away from that, things don't go so well. It's not uh, the other way around. So it's not that God, uh, because God is the creator of all things and he determines and knows what is good and what is harmful, that means that we don't decide what is good for people and what is bad for people and then define love that way. God decides what is good and what is bad, and we follow that, and then that is love for those people because it's good for them and because God has determined it. Uh, because what God says is good is good for people, and what he says is bad is bad for people. So to contradict that would not be genuine love. So in other words, if we really and truly have a genuine love for people, we're going to tell them that which is good, even when it's hard, and we're going to tell them to avoid the things that are evil even though sometimes that is also hard. Have you ever had to confront a close friend about something that you know in their life is not good? I'm going to not even use the word evil. I'm just going to say that something in their life is not good. And you've had to come up and say, look, I, I'm, I, I'm concerned about this. This is not good. That's a difficult thing to do. And yet if you genuinely love people, if there's a genuine love there, then you would tell them what is the evil, that they need to get away from it, get as far from it as they can, and you would want them to cleave to those things that are good. So we see this very clearly in 1 John 5, 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So love there is tied to obedience to that which is good, to obeying and loving God's commandments. So how do you know that you're loving people? You know that you're loving people by loving God and keeping his commandments. Because the commandments of God in the Bible are not just there so that we have something to hold over everybody's head, right? That's the whole point of this section. When I say that what God says is good is really good and what God says is bad is really bad, this is the key. The commandments of God are not there just so that we have rules to follow. It is the expression of God's objective good. So God's commandments are his expression of what is objectively good for us as his people and for all of his creation. Like I used the example a minute ago, God's commandments are an out, uh, outflow and outworking of his nature and his character, and therefore they're good for us. So uh, we don't need to look at them as, well, this is the list of rules I've got to follow. This is what God says is good for your life. This is what God says will bring you ultimate joy is for your good and for his glory. So this objective evil that we've talked about is bad for people, and the objective good that we've talked about is good for people. And if we have genuine love, that ought to be our design. That ought to be our goal every day is to express genuine love by staying as far away from the objective evil and cleaving to that which is good and coming alongside others to teach and, and to encourage those things in their life as well. If we really love them, that's what we will we will do. I think it's for parents especially. You know, it's a hard thing to do sometimes in parenting 
to continue to say the things that are good and the things that are good and the things that are evil and the things that are evil. But we truly love our children. That's what we're going to do, you know. Oh, well, I, I, can't, I can't tell my kid that. I, I love them too much. I, I just, I'm afraid they'll get mad at me. Well, if you truly love them, if you have genuine love, you're going to tell them the hard things. You're going to tell them what's truly good for their life uh, and, and know that it's the good because God has said it. Now, to close, of course, I think everybody in this room, this is, this is not a revelation of any kind, but who is the perfect example of genuine love, of, of real agape love that is genuine? Well, the perfect example of that is Jesus Christ himself. He perfect, perfectly in every moment abhorred evil and cling to the good and all through his life here in his ministry. He perfectly in every moment abhorred evil and, and cleaved to the good. And so the beginning of the transformation that we've been reading about, uh, it, when you say you don't want to be conformed to the image of this world, but you want to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the very beginning of that is to repent of your sins and profess faith in Jesus Christ. He is the example of genuine love for us. So if you want genuine love in your life and you want to cleave to that which is good and abhor that which is evil, then you repent of your sins, you profess faith in Jesus Christ, and you begin to follow him. And that's the beginning of this process that we've been talking about. Genuine love can only come through union with Jesus Christ and through faith in him. I hope those things have been a blessing to you this morning.